Hey, y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. My guest today is Jace Sievers, a musician, thinker, and all-around good guy who has quite a story, particularly about his time as a member of the Jesus People USA Commune in Chicago, Illinois. He's going to share many of his experiences of that time period of his life, which though are a mixed bag, most of it doesn't reflect well on the organization. I debated in my head some whether making one individual's mostly negative experience public was the right thing to do. I personally have had no dealings with Jesus People USA, nor know anyone directly involved, but I do have many friends and acquaintances who do, and they hold it and Glenn Kaiser, one of the more prominent faces of the collective, in very high esteem. Some folks I know say they've been personally assisted by the group. With that in mind, I even back on In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, episode 206, gave Jesus People USA as an example as possibly an instance where voluntary socialism might work as opposed to the kind enforced by state violence. I realize now I spoke in ignorance, but even so, I hate to aid in demeaning figures and a group that many folks I have affinity for look up to. Ultimately, I decided that Mr. Seaver's story needed to be told. Firstly, if the account is true, then that's no fault of his or mine, but of particular individuals at Jesus People USA. Secondly, mistakes or errors by any entity contain valuable lessons for all of us, especially those in the business of attempting to aid or organize others. Thirdly, we're all going to be found fallible of something at some point, especially those who try to accomplish anything as difficult as making a difference in other people's lives. Fourthly, Those friends I mentioned that won't appreciate hearing a critical view of Kaiser and company at the same time have absolutely no problem letting the world know how they think other individuals or parties are in error. Just go to their Facebook pages. If these folks do get angry at what is said today, it's kind of like when a comedian who makes his living demeaning others gets indignant at any criticism directed at their friends, families, or themselves. I think I've said enough on that. Also, I should apologize for having recorded outside. On occasion, a neighbor dog and the wind try to get in on the podcast. So with that out of the way, here we go. How did you grow up in a religious sense? Well, I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin and was raised Lutheran. Uh, Missouri Synod. I think I had a somewhat of a conversion experience, I guess you would say, when I was 18. Um, you say somewhat. I remember it that it was uh, very non-emotional, very lackluster. And uh, I remember the, the person who was praying with me was like, well, do you feel any different? Do you feel any different? I'm like, no, not really. I mean, just, hmm. you know, and I felt kind of at a loss, like I, I was supposed to feel different. And he thought I was supposed to feel different. But uh, that never really occurred for me, mm-hmm. so uh, so I um, like I say was a Christian, tried to be a good little Jesus boy for for a couple of years, and then I wound up uh, joining uh, Jesus People USA, which uh, was a 500 member 
Christian Commune, and I joined there in 1982, and I lived there until the fall of 1991. Why did you join Japuza, as I guess they call themselves? Basically, I mean, I came from a poor uh, family in Wisconsin. Um, I didn't really have a whole lot of opportunities. My father was a homosexual artist who killed himself when I was a kid. Didn't do very good in school. But I always wanted to be something. You know, I always wanted to try to do something with my life. I was the type of precocious kid that would, you know, I would talk to, I talked to the priest on Sundays and asked him philosophical questions and stuff, just just odd little things. So, I mean, I'm just, I was, I think everybody when they're younger, you know, they're searching for something to do with their lives and they want to, uh, they want to try to give their own lives meaning. And I, honestly, Jesus People was probably the only game in town for me. You know, and I heard about it, and I initially went and visited for about a, about a week, and I didn't like it. I didn't like it at all. Initially? Uh, yeah, I didn't like it at all. Uh, it just seemed dirty, and uh, D- dirty in what way? Just, just dirty. Like it was, it was, it was a rundown, oh, okay. decrepit. People were dirty. The house place was dirty. Like the actual, uh, not not the people they served, but the, but the actual staff. Yeah, I mean, every, I mean, everything about it was dirty. Uh-huh. Do you think their angle was, well, we're servants or we're, we're uh, taking vows of poverty or something? No, they're just slobs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they were, I mean, it's like mostly younger people. They're kind of slobs. Oh, that's true. You know, I mean, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, I wasn't exactly the cleanest person, but I remember just thought, this is, this is like kind of overdoing it. Right. <laughs> you know, I gave it another chance. I thought, well, you know, there's, I thought about it, and then I wound up coming back there for about a month. And once I stayed there for a month, and I really liked it. And I felt very much at home for the first, I'd say the first uh, couple of years. Uh-huh. It was very much felt like I was part of something bigger than myself, and I felt accepted. And around a lot of people, there were a lot like me, and same age, same goals, uh, like a lot of the same music. And it was, it was almost kind of like a, a summer camp in a way. Mm-hmm. Now, did you have a job there everybody has to earn their keep right yeah i mean that's that's the thing i mean you um that's the one good thing if i had to say one good thing about jesus people the time i was there was that they'd never asked for money um instead what they did is they had different businesses and you would raise money with um with the different businesses like so i i did a lot of things like most most people you know if you're reasonably competent you'll kind of you start out the low end, you kind of work your way up. I mean, so, you know, they started me with moving, and then I was a painter, and I hung drywall. And then for six, seven years, I did electrical work for them, and then I worked in their studio. Um, so I did a lot of things, but everything pretty much brought money in. Right. You know, especially working as an electrician for, for that amount of time. Now, they trained you to how to be an electrician, is that right? Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I worked with a guy named Terry, he was a great guy, really great guy, and uh, he had his electrical license, so he just said, this is how we do it, and, you know, he showed you a few things, and uh, you just went and did it, and he looked at it and said, yeah, that's right, if you had a question, you'd ask, and, mm-hmm. you know, it was just a typical, kind of like a uh, kind of like apprenticeship. I liked it, that was good, I, I learned the job pretty quickly, but uh, unfortunately, what, what wound up happening was, if you were at all competent, you would wind up having to do your job, and then about three or four other people's, you know, huh. as well. Right. who weren't as competent or didn't really have the work ethic you had. And that was extremely frustrating, you know. It's interesting because that's the general criticism of 
all, almost all communes or any kind of collectivist system is that uh, not everybody pulls their weight. Yeah. Uh, or maybe someone is assigned to something they're not good at or something like that. I mean, I've heard of communes even uh, making rules like if you don't pull your weight, you got to go. Yeah. They, they, they end up becoming like somewhat dictatorial for survival. It was never that. There's a really strange dichotomy about Jesus' people. I mean, it was, it's a world unto itself. So while you were at uh, Jesus People USA, you, they put on shows, of course, right? And were yeah. you involved in like the um, the Cornerstone Fest and all that type of thing? Oh yeah, every everybody who lived at Jesus People was involved one way or another at Cornerstone Festival. Mm-hmm. It was a it was a really fun time for the most part. Um, I would go out there usually about a about a month ahead of time, and I would help uh, build the stage and wire everything up, you know, because they had me working as an electrician at the time. And then during the festival, I would use I would usually work either a, a spotlight or uh, work on the, on this. I didn't like working main stage; that was boring. Because so I would work on the um, and acts were kind of eh, most of them were, except from seeing the seventy sevens and uh, um, Steve Taylor when he fell off the stage. Oh my! Um, yeah, <laughs> that was pretty wild. I would run spots, you know, and that was fun. But I really liked working on the on the uh, second stage, like the backstage, whatever they called it. Uh, Stage two, mm-hmm. the indoor stage. Uh, that's where they had the the really fun artists. You know, that's where they had you know Daniel Amos and Vector and all these other groups that were like the, the more obscure stuff. You know, and it was more high energy and it was yeah, that was fun. And you got to kind of meet people and hang out with yeah. them. Yeah, I, we're both fans of Steve Scott. Oh, absolutely. It's, you got to meet him. Yeah, I did. Um, my thing about Steve Scott is I, I I credit him for my love of lyrics. Because up to that point, I was a jazzer, and I didn't like lyrics. I had really had no place for them. I thought they were stupid. <laughs> and then, uh, well, was that Jesus people? My friend Gary turned me on to Love in the Western World. Love and addiction will get you every time. It's a gig that don't pay, like they say it's a crime. I'm sinking in confusion, I don't know who to call. The line is always busy, and the writing's on the wall. And we're sitting around drinking coffee listening to this album and I was like this is really an amazing album I mean this is so great you know um, and I had never written anybody just out of the blue I, I, I just thought I, you know I'm just going to write Steve Scott he's got his address on the thing I'm going to write him a letter mm-hmm. you know tell him I thought hey I really appreciated the work you did and I didn't expect to hear back from him sure. but about six months later I got a letter back from him and, and uh, you know he said hey thanks for listening just a nice response mm-hmm. uh, so I was just thrilled that I was like oh my gosh about three or four years later when I was writing that's when I got the bug uh, he was a judge at the only Cornerstone Festival poetry competition it was him Rupert Lardell and uh, I think maybe Arlene Moss if I remember anyway Steve was 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 the judge and mm-hmm. he was my hero mm-hmm. and uh, I crushed it oh really I crushed it yeah it was great it was it was, it was it was, it was a kind of an out-of-body experience because I crushed it and I knew I had crushed it. Mm-hmm. But I had never had anything like that. Mm-hmm. Never had any sort of success in anything really I did before uh-huh. other than that. So I was elated but also kind of confused. <laughs> you know, but it was just, you know, it was a contest at a festival. You right. know? Um, so I won like a, I think I won a CD of his. He gave me like a copy of his limited edition emotional tourist CD and 
Rupert gave me a book, uh-huh. you know, and they signed them both. And, uh, you know, it, it was just it was just nice, though. It was cool. You know, the, the thing about it was that uh, after I won the contest, they tried to, Jesus people, the, the leadership tried to pretend that the contest never existed because I won. And they didn't want me to win. <laughs> so it was just kind of like that type of, it was just mind screw. I mean, I had like two people out of all Jesus people that said, hey man, you won that contest. That was really great. Uh-huh. Everybody else was like, yeah, well, you know, it was a lot to me. Right. But it, I mean, it wasn't anything. But yeah, Steve Scott, you know, it was funny. I, as again, being an atheist, I don't listen to Christian music hardly. But I went and bought his, his album. I bought the LP because we listen to records. Uh-huh. And I bought Love in the Western World again and I bought it about a, a week or two ago. Oh, really? And I've been listening to it. Yeah, because I just love it. Yeah. Just a week from today. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, but I... I've always liked Steve Scott's music when he, in fact, I think I'm pretty instrumental on in getting him at Cornerstone Festival because Henry, who used to, uh, who was one of Henry Wong, who used to book everything, mm-hmm. and I would, he was in our family, he was part of the royal family, uh-huh. you know, and um, I'd always pass him and say, Hank, I said, come on, get Steve Scott this year, get Steve Scott this year, and the one year, I think it was 1990, he, he did, so, and of course I was working the stage there, and um, got to see him do Ghost Train and oh, yeah. do his odd little clap thing that he does when he performs. <laughs> you know. But uh, that was that was nice. The story's old, where girl meets boy and boy meets girl. Love in the Western world, the Western world. The song is oh, Daniel Amos. I remember seeing Daniel Amos there. They put on such a good show. Really good. I remember seeing Tim Chandler do like a... A backwards flip onto his back, you know, or forward flip onto his back to and, and play, keep playing. Oh my goodness. It was just weird. I'm like, how do you do that? And yeah. just never stop playing, yeah. you know. But they had like this conga line that they did, and, and literally everybody. There had to be probably two thousand people in this in in that uh, that tent to see Daniel Amos, and I kid you not, every single one of them joined into a conga line. It went up on stage. It went up. It went up on stage. It went outside the stage. <laughs> you know, it went. It wandered through the chairs. I mean, it, it, it went on, and they, you know, they played that conga line for about fifteen minutes, just so everybody could get it, could get the, just back to square uh-huh. one. But yeah, that was that was fun. Adam again, seeing them. That oh was man, a I love great that. Great show, yeah. yeah. Think about Jet Circus. They, uh, they had this thing where they would they would perform with the fly and their pants zipped down. It was, a, it was like signature. a thing, and we and we're like we're, we're telling them it's like, hey man, your fly zipped down. I'm like, oh yeah, we know, we know. You know, <laughs> like, I was like, okay. <laughs> it was just kind of odd. Now there were some. We'll get to you playing music in here in a minute, but mm-hmm. there was some bands that were that came out of the commune. So. Like, I can know like the crossing was one. The crossing was one. Uh, I lived across the way from uh, the guy who played uh, harp and kind of mandolin and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I knew all those guys and mm-hmm. stuff. Um, I, I can't honestly. I can't stand that music. Oh, you don't like? Uh, oh Celtic, God, Celtic I hate music. Irish music. It makes I make I understand why Irish people just want to drink and fight. <laughs> if I had to listen to that all day, oh God, it's just teeny. You know, it drives me crazy. I, I mean, love it, but my dad he thinks there's too many notes. Too many notes. It's just that if they're they're just all in the same idiom. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. 
Uh, Crash Dog was another one. It was yeah, it was funny. It's like uh, both Tim and Andy were my. I was their older buddy when they first joined the commune. Uh-huh. You know, when you first come in there, you you get assigned to somebody, and they kind of like show you the ropes uh-huh. and stuff. So, I think I was Tim's buddy for about a maybe about a week, and then he got another buddy, Paul. But I was Andrew's buddy for I don't know a couple of weeks, two three weeks mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, I was like Andrew. Both of them were in our were in our extended family in the Heron, the Royal Heron family. Uh-huh. They're both in there. Um, they're both pretty good guys. Uh-huh. You know, it, was one of them named Spike or something? Yeah, it's, it's his name is Tim. Oh, Tim okay. Davis, and he uh, I got you. he goes by the name Spike Nard. He was an interesting character. When they did their first show, Jim Denton, who was uh, just stopped playing bass with Rez. He was he was kind of helping them, so he played their very first show at Cornerstone. But he had broke his ankle, like I think like a week before. So he he played it on in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't get to go see that show because I was working on another show, and I was like, I want to go see the show, and it's like everybody wants to go see the show. You have to go run spot. Like okay, yeah. You know, so I actually have never seen them play. I did run sound a little bit and lights a little bit for cause and effect. And Willie and. Uh, Gosh, I can't remember everybody's name in right. there. But they, they were all really good guys. Do you think uh, Japuza, by and large, helped people and did a good thing? Yes and no. Okay, so why yes and then why no? There's a story that Alexander Silson-Easton wrote about, uh, I can't remember if it was in the, either in the Cancer Ward or the Gugulak Archipelago. So in this story, there's an individual, he's, he's in heaven, and he's spending his time in heaven, and all of a sudden he gets this mailer from hell, and it's this really nice brochure. It's like, you know, hey, come on down and visit hell. It's, you know, we've gotten a bad rap. It's really a cool place, and there's the, the pictures in it are great. You know, it's like gardens and beaches and beautiful people hanging out so he thinks about it and after some time he decides yeah i mean why not i'm gonna go down and take vacation down there so he takes the elevator down sure enough he gets off the elevator and there's you know satan is there standing there and he's well dressed he's just a charming guy you know and he takes him a tour around and everyone really is beautiful the drinks are great uh just sceneries everything about it is just just magical. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not a par with heaven, but it's it's better because it's got that rough element to it, right? So he has a great time over the week, and then he he, he goes back back up to heaven. And about a week later, he gets a call from Satan. He says, "Hey, you know, you know, you look like you had a really good time down there. Um, we like to have you around. Why don't you think about you know just transferring your soul over to to us and spend spend eternity down in hell with us." He says, you know, he thinks about it. He says, yeah, okay, why not? So he, you know, goes to, uh, you know, St. Peter or whoever and he arranges to sign his soul away. And he's like, you sure you want to do this? like, yeah, yeah, I know what I'm doing. So he signs his soul away and he gets on the elevator back down to hell. As soon as he gets off the elevator, it's all the flames, all the horror, all the terror, all the death, all the destruction. Every possible imaginable torment you could imagine is, is there. And he's getting off the elevator, and, and Satan is standing there. And he says, hey, hey, wait a minute. He says, it wasn't like that when I was visiting. And Satan looks at him and says, that's because you were visiting. And Jesus' people is a lot like that. 
If you came to visit, you would not see those things. When you stayed there, it took a while for the flames, for the monsters to come out of, of the woodwork till you really got enmeshed into the machinery. And by then you were kind of acclimated to it. You, you know, the strange things that went on, you thought, oh, that, that kind of makes sense. So you give know. an example of a strange thing or the monsters. Things like uh, people telling you who you can and who you can't marry, um, whether you can have children, what jobs you can do, who you can talk to, where you eat, where you sleep. Basically, every aspect of your life, even, even what sexual positions you can use with your spouse. Really? Yes. I mean, it is, it's... And you, you're there and you think, well, that kind of makes sense. But it just becomes so oppressive and controlling. And the other thing that uh, that's coupled with that is, you know, at Jesus People, you are not known for your strengths. You were known for your weaknesses or your sins. And if you didn't have them, they would be ascribed to you. You would have a reputation. You know, it didn't matter who you are, what you did, you were going to get some sort of reputation that you were this person or that type of person. Unless, of course, you're in the ruling family, you know, one of the, one of the elders' families. Not, not even the part of the family, but if you were actually a blood relation. If you were a blood relation to one of the ruling families, you were great. You were golden. You know, you could do no wrong. You were infallible. But if you're like everybody else, you were a bad person, you were a flawed person, and that's how they controlled you. Because, you know, we're all there trying to serve God, trying to, you know, trying to make things out of our life, trying to do good. So you're really wide open for all this stuff, mm-hmm. you know. And then you these people that are supposedly, you know, your spiritual leaders, um, throwing this mind, mind game on you, and a mind game on everybody, it was just... It was crazy, and of course, so it worked because it was up there at the top. It worked down, so you, you you policed yourself, but you also looked for the worst things in other people. Did and, you go, have to go report it to other pe- to the well, leaders? You, you or would, it was kind of like 1984. You would have thought crimes, uh-huh. you know, and you would you would self police yourself, like oh I did this, oh I did that, I thought this, I thought that, you know, and just, you know, and of course they would make a big deal out of it. Anything you could do, you know, if you didn't toe that line, there was hell to pay. And like, would you be shunned or something? Or yeah, you know, you ever read Kafka, the trial? Yeah, it's been a long time, but yeah. Yeah, well, you know, in the trial, he's accused of a crime, and he never finds out what the crime is. Right. Right. Well, Jesus' people was like that, but it goes a step further: is that you're accused of a crime, but you never really told that you were accused of a crime. You just had this vague sense that something had happened something shifted in the yeah, attitudes toward you and yeah. you didn't know what it was it was tangible but you could never really get your finger on it hmm. of what it was you know you just knew that you had been you had just been tried sentenced and ex- executed you know without even your knowledge in a lot of ways well maybe excommunicated about a, would be a better word uh no the excommunicated if you're excommunicated you were Gone. That, that you were gone, right. you know, and there were some. There were some but they weren't going around that. killing anybody. No, no, yeah. just just character assassination. Oh, that's okay. all. Yeah. You know, in your mind, was it deliberate that it ended up that way, or is it just something that they adapted over time? Like I've worked at a lot of places where some of the rules are kind of bizarre and very specific, and you kind of find out there was some incident once, and so they had to make a blanket rule, and just things just piled up over time. I think when you start with a flawed system of government, that you. A flawed system of government is what you're going to get, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, you know the saying of that uh, power corrupts. Well, it's it's not that uh, absolute power corrupts. It's that power corrupts those that are corruptible. 
and the See, ruling family was definitely was was definitely that. I mean, they were those people were crazy. Hmm. Okay, so who was the ruling family, if you don't mind me asking? All right, so when I was there, they had a council of ten, okay? And they were, of course, self-elected and elected for life, all right? So the main person was this woman named Dawn Heron, and she was the daughter, or she was the mother for Wendy, which became Wendy Kaiser, uh, John Heron, who was the drummer of Res Band, and uh, Catherine who is uh, also one of the other pastor's wives. So you got four of them right there. They're instant blood relations, okay? Then you got, you know, throw Glenn in the mix there, so he's part of the family. Right. You know, and it's this very nepotic relationship. They basically just ran everything. And they had a couple of the pastors there, but they were pretty much just yes men. Mm-hmm. They really were. If they wanted to do something, they would. That's what, that's what would happen. That was a really frustrating thing, is that you're living in this commune, and you had absolutely no say. Even though you're in a commune, you're thinking that, yeah, we all have equal say, we all have, a, you know, we're all equal partners. Not at all. There was no voting going on. So this was like the pigs and animal farm. And yeah. Like oh, yeah, definitely. They, they, were, they were definitely more equal than others, without <laughs> a doubt. You know, but there's always a perception that, oh, we're just like everybody else. And no, they were not like everybody else. They lived in a completely different way. Mm-hmm. They had money where everybody else did. And they made the rules. They didn't work. They did whatever they wanted. So explain the economic system. Well, if you were just a rank-and-file member... You got your food. Um, if you needed money, you would pass a note and asking for it. Hey, I need a new pair of shoes. I need a new pair of clothes. Uh, depending on how high you were up on the food chain, your wishes would be granted. So you weren't given an allowance oh, or no, a salary no, no, or something? No, there was never any allowance. I was never paid, a, never paid anything my, the whole time that I worked at Jesus People, except for the last, the last two months when I decided to leave and I... I said, if you want to get rid of me, you're going to have to pay me. You know, you're going to have to pay me for my work, you know, because I'm not leaving with, for, with a dollar. Because that's what they would do. Yeah, people that were there lived there for like 10 years. And they'd say, ah, you want to leave? You leave now. You leave tomorrow. We'll give you $25 and a bus ticket. Families, too. I mean, I knew, I had fam- I knew friends that had kids. They had lived there for like 10 years. And when they made public the decision that they, that they were going to leave... They kicked him out, and they, they, the family had to live in a pup tent. The kids had to go, like, kind of stay at the commune until they could get their act together. I mean, just not their act together, but just get finances. They didn't have nothing. Right. You know, there was, like, no support system. It was just completely just... No halfway house, even. No. Bums rush, stab you in the back, kick you in the back on your way out the door. And everything you did was garbage. So I know at some point you get married, right? Mm-hmm. And is this to a, a fellow commune member? I did. I had an arranged marriage. Um, did you have any say in it? I did to a certain extent. I did tell them that I didn't want to marry her. And at one point they said, too bad. Um, I mean, you could have walked out the front door. I, no, I could have done that. Yeah. Absolutely. But I, could, I could have walked out that door. Absolutely. And I don't have anybody to blame for myself for that. I mean, I was not a strong enough person mm-hmm. at the time. But, I mean, the thing was, like, there was a thing that was always dangled before me was my music. And also, you're standing in the community, so you know if you went against the, went against the grain of what they wanted, basically, you could kiss any sort of 
you know, ambition or desire you wanted, you can kiss that goodbye. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was pretty adamant about doing music. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, you know, maybe this is something that they twist your mind. You know, maybe this is something that God wants me to do this so for this reason or that reason. It's all God does this, God does that. It's all just like, I mean, I'm an atheist now. I don't believe any of this, this stuff, mm-hmm. you know. We'll get to that journey yeah, in a minute. Yeah, but um, yeah, it was it was always it was they're working your faith against you. They're working the working the system against you. And but yeah, I I could have said no. Mm-hmm. I could have said I, I I could have, but I didn't. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, well, I didn't, so I'm going to try to make this work as long as I can. And I, I mean, I I stayed married to that individual for 17 years. Wow. 12 years after I left the commune, I just really tried to make it work but y'all had children right had one child Mm -hmm. yeah and you guys when you end up leaving maybe i'm jumping ahead of the story but she left with you yeah they actually suggested that she stay because they did it with with certain couples if you they found one individual that they liked and another one that they didn't and uh, they liked her because she was very uh easygoing manipulative and i was kind of raising a stink so they're i think they're pretty much happy to get rid of me Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, they did that to a lot of couples. They um, and sometimes successfully, where they would you know they drive a wedge between the relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, what's worse is they just drove wedges between the parents and the children. That was that was really that was really bad. The leaders would you know would say, oh this person is a bad person, that person is a bad person, and they would say it in front of the kids, and they would encourage the kids to talk about the parents. Like a ba- when you say bad person, you mean like a sinner? Or? Yeah, okay. oh sinner. They did this. They did this thing wrong. They did that thing wrong. They're, they're, they had a phrase called in the flesh. Besides the big ones of like obviously uh, adultery or killing or whatever, like what were considered sins around there? Uh, basically not towing the line. Okay. You know, thinking for yourself. Did they play the authority card? They had authority. Oh from gosh, God? yes, they had authority okay. over it. You had, you had no, you had absolutely no control over your life, and I really mean that. You, they controlled again where you slept, what you ate. What clothes you would get to wear, what you did during the day, what you did in the evenings, mm-hmm. who you got to talk to, who you didn't get to talk to. I'm sure you did this. You probably must have placed yourself in their shoes trying to figure out like why they're doing this. Do you think they were controlling everybody's lives to try to make it this a cohesive organization? Or were they trying to shield people from sin and temptation? Or I think it might have started off with uh, just looking out for the best interests of people and thinking that they could think better. Like a kind the, of a, um, what do you call it? A, a spiritual covering? That or a paternalism. Yeah. I think that they initially thought that, that they could think they knew better than the individual knew. Mm-hmm. But then at, at some point, you, you, you have to realize that willful ignorance is the same thing as, as, as being wrong. I mean, they would sit up at night, you know, uh, and I know this because I was in part of the, you know, I was in the ruling family and I seen it, you know. They'd sit up at night just you know, making plans about people's lives. Oh, they're going to do this, and we're going to have them do this. And, you know, I don't know if we can have them do this because they said this or they said that. And mm-hmm. I mean, it, I mean, and, just, and it didn't just stop with them. I was privy to conversations about other pastors and their sexual, you know, things that were going on. How would them. they know that? It was a thing. Like, you would, like, say one of them would say, oh, hey, I'm having a, a problem with this, blah, blah, blah. And they'd be like, oh, oh, really? And, you know, they'd be like all concerned and everything. But then as soon as the door was closed, they're running out the door. Uh-huh. So, I mean, I would hear conversations like stuff that I was like, I don't want to hear this. Why am I here? Why are you, why are you discussing this in such a cavalier fashion? Can you give an example? Well, there was like a one pastor who um, his wife was 
didn't like having sex with him because he was too fat. Mm-hmm. Why do I need to hear that? I mean, that's something that was obviously confided to you as a friend, and here you are, it's like, all of a sudden, it's all over the, the community. Uh, I was very honest and very open, but I learned that there were some things that you just don't say. And I assume that they didn't take kindly to constructive criticism or feedback? Like There was no constructive criticism. There was no feedback. Okay. That did not exist. They didn't have a suggestion box? No. Oh, gosh, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. We're not even touching on you know, the child molestation that went on there. There's a film, right? A documentary yeah, about that. Yeah, and I, I knew uh, Jane, I know Jamie. I know Jamie really well. He lived a door down from me. Uh-huh. And all these kids that he was talking about, I, and I know every single one of those kids. For folks who haven't seen the documentary, just give like a brief uh, rundown of what happened. Young man who uh, lived at the commune for, was raised there. He uh, He's a filmmaker and he decided to do a film on it. And during the process of, of interviewing people from the film, he interviewed like 120 20 kids that lived there. Out of the 120, 70 of them had been sexually molested there. By one person? No, no, by uh, lots of people. Really? It was like something that was really covered up. Yeah. And it was weird because, I mean, I was there the whole time and I didn't know about any of it. To play contrarian with you, is it possible that it's not true if you didn't know about no, it? No, because there were too many accounts and when they, start, when they were telling the stuff that went on, certain events, I'm like, I remember that event. Mm-hmm. I remember that and I, I remember thinking that something was kind of strange was going on, but I didn't know. That was the last thing you thought about, that something was going to go on like that. Were any of the, the people that were doing the molesting, were they in on the council or in the... Oh, yes, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Was there any, ever any justice for that? Well, no. Uh, the, you know, Johnny was, the, was one of the main perpetrators of it, and uh, he got kicked out. Oh, so they did... Well, so, they kind of left. I mean, what happened was, after... John's mom, Dawn, died. And she was really like the spider in the whole web. Once she died, it kind of fell apart in a lot of ways. Where they, uh, the organization, you, know, you mean? Yeah, because she was the one who was kind of keeping it together, which is it's like in such... She was holding everything to her, to her chest really, really tight. Mm-hmm. And so when she died, it kind of loosened up. And so, you know, Johnny in particular started kind of just freewheeling. Stuff started coming out what was going on. I mean, he was extremely irresponsible with the finances. I mean, he just, I mean, he lived, like, mm-hmm. and so whatever he wanted, he bought. You know, he bought stuff for his kids and everything else, and the, the disparity was just kind of mind-blowing. But back to the molestation cases. Yeah. When this came out, do you think this was a shocker to, like, say, for, like, Glenn Kaiser or somebody like that? Like, I mean, do you think he was kept in the dark about it? Or, yeah, of course, you may not know, but. I don't know. You know, I mean, they're all in the console. They kind of had to know some sort of stuff what was going on. They certainly knew that Johnny was not on the up and up. Uh-huh. Um, they knew that one of the other council members that was there, the individual never mentioned who it was that molested her, but by what she said, I, I, I know who it was. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I have no doubt. It's unfortunate. And again, the, the reputation of communes that eventually it all leads to sex were usually for the, the, the main cult leader. Well, uh, it's but perverted this, but sex, too. You know, every one of the cases has been... Pedophilia. Yeah. I mean, the thing with like Neil Taylor was one of them too. I mean, he was caught buggering some kid. Remember David Coverton, his neighbor's wife. And even Moses killed a servant with a knife. That wasn't right. Abraham, he planned to take a child's life. Oh, no. But they all repented before God would ever strike. Because every.
Jesus People USA, one of their uh, claims to fame is that they're in Chicago and they're helping a lot of people that need help, right? Mm -hmm. uh, is that true in your mind, based on what you saw? Yeah, I think they did a lot of good for social things. They you know, fed 250 people a day. Mm -hmm. um, they had a crisis pregnancy center. Um, they had an overnight, overnight shelter, mm -hmm. you know, and they, they, you know, they reached out to a lot of kids around the neighborhood and stuff. So, yeah, they did do a lot of good. The thing is, the good that was done was done by the rank-and-file people. Those are the people are just some of the most wonderful people you could ever meet in your entire life. I mean, just hands down, almost every single one of them. Just amazing people. So the council wasn't directly involved? Uh, they were involved in, like... I don't, I don't know how in the world this, the feeding program started. I know the overnight shelter program started because there were, you know, a woman would come up with a kid and said, hey, I need a place to stay. And so, you know, you know they made a bed for her in the, um, you know, in, in, the, in the dining room. Mm -hmm. And eventually it got to be, the dining room got to be full up because it was like a safe place to stay. Mm -hmm. you know, and then eventually they opened up a, a shelter. And I remember I helped, uh, I helped build that shelter. Mm -hmm. And that was a good experience. I felt like I was doing good things there. Okay. You know, when I got to do things like that. So there were a couple of fun things at Jesus People. They would have, when I first lived there, nobody had a TV. They had like one communal TV. So we would all get together in the, in the dining room, and one of the elders would pick out a VCR. He'd go to Blockbuster, and he would pick out the movie of the week. Uh -huh. So there'd be like two, 300 of us sitting in the dining room, the big dining room, and they put the, um, the TV on like two folding tables. Uh -huh. I don't know how it didn't collapse. It's one of those big RCA giant. How big know. was the TV? It was huge. It was like one of those big giant, you know, okay. RCA, Curtis Math, things that weighed like about 100 pounds. And they uh -huh. they put a table and then they put another table on top of it and then they put the TV on top of that and we would watch movies. And that was a lot of fun. I have to tell you, watching Mystery Science Theater 3000 in a, a room full of people, that is the best way to watch that thing because it's just, it's hilarious. So it's, they would rent things that weren't always religious or something. Yeah, they would, they would rent different things, yeah. you know. I mean, of course, you know, if there was a bad scene, someone would run up with a, with a pillow to cover up over the, over the, if there was a little bit of skin or something, uh -huh. you know, just like, oh, whatever, you know. Yeah. Of course, you draw more attention to it because there's somebody standing there with a pillow and look like, oh, not yet, not yet, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, <laughs> I will say here's another story that um, sticks in my mind. You talk about um, the good times and the bad times. Jesus' people would have communion about twice a year it was a very rare um, time they would do it because it was supposed to be special mm -hmm. right usually in the summer and then always always on New Year's Eve so we would all get together it was this long drawn out affair where you would have uh, you would have church you would sing songs and then someone one of the elders would get up usually Glenn or somebody would get up and do a sermon you know, and the sermons were always the same. You're bad, get good, repent, blah, blah, blah. Even though you're a Christian, you know. Mm -hmm. And then, after that, you know, like how they have in Seinfeld, you know, like, now the time for the airing of grievances? Uh -huh. We would have to, there would be this thing that everybody dreaded. You had to stand up and confess your shortcomings. Of course, now, the elders never yeah. had these shortcomings, so they never would. But all us poor rank-and-file schmucks, we all was like, you know, oh, I'm, you know, I'm sorry for being this. I'm not a good community member. I'm not, you know, I'm this, did this, that. And of course, inevitably, somebody who is clueless would say, yeah, I've been masturbating all the time. <laughs> you know, and you know, just like, oh, no, let's not talk about that. Okay, keep, uh -huh. tell your family member about that. It was this long, drawn-out affair, and that, that part used to come an hour or two. And oh, it, was, it was tenuous. It was terrible. You just felt emotionally and spiritually drained. I mean, it was just... 
somebody standing up and saying, you know, talking about how bad they were for some nonsense thing, you know, but like they were like breaking down and you just like, oh God, I need a shower. Mm-hmm. All of the days are gray. The sun has set and it stays away with every word that I've tried to say and whispered in vain. About communism, it was a funny little thing about living at Jesus people. You could always tell whether someone's going to be able to fit in or not. We would always get these donations of, from Jewel. Jewel is a, a grocery store, kind of like Publix or Kroger that we had up, up in Chicago. But we'd always get these donations of bread. And so we would have piles of bread uh, sitting up, you know, on, on a table. And when you first moved there, you would take a, take a loaf of bread and you would untwist it and you would take the loaf. You would take your pieces out and close it back up and put it down. Well, after you had lived there for about a week or two, you just would grab a loaf and you would just rip it open, grab your bread and just sit it out. Because? Because the next person would just, they weren't going to take that. They were just going to do the same thing. They were just going to grab a completely unopened loaf and just rip it open and grab their two pieces. I mean, it was, so it was very wasteful. Yeah, it was extremely wasteful. But that's how a lot of it was. It was just because you didn't own anything. You know, there was no price in anything. You just, yeah, you take what you want and whatever. There was like, there was no stewardship. There was no sense of ownership and nobody really cared. So when I lived there, the cars were primarily donations. And because there were donations, you're just driving here for like for an hour or two. Did you have to sign them out or something? They were assigned to you. Whoever, you know, like you had to sign up for like, hey, I have to go to the hospital. Or I have to go do this and this and that. And usually they would have a driver. But you weren't allowed to have your own car. Oh, no, no, no. Unless you were, you know, Johnny Heron, then he could have his own car. Right. Some of the businesses eventually, they saw that, hey, we have to have people that are in charge of cars. Otherwise, you're not going to get taken care of. When you say was, businesses, these were businesses. Yeah, like they with like the the, um, the painters had their own car, right. you know, that they would take care of, uh-huh. you know, or the uh, electricians. We like we had our own vehicle that we took care of, you know, because we had to make sure because that's what we used to get to work. But you know, you hardly ever got to take those on joy rides. You mm-hmm. know, you, once once you took them back from from work, they were up on public domain, so you just kind of you sign up for them, saying and the deke of the week. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the guy who they would assign to kind of run things for the week. He would say, okay, you can take this car, you can take that car. Of course, you know, they would never last at all because no one would ever take care of them. Um, wouldn't change the oil. No, you? no, no. And, of course, the <laughs> funnest thing about it, though, was um, if there's anything fun, there is actually a fun thing about it. It's like we get these cars, and they were usually just train wrecks to begin with. Yeah. And we give them all names. I remember one was called the dumpster. Yeah. Um, another one didn't have windows. It was called the sled. Um, of course, we had the TARDIS, of course. And, uh, you know, <laughs> all these cars had different names. Usually they were like whoever, if somebody donated from a particular town, like somebody uh, in Minot, North Dakota. Is it North Dakota? Wherever Minot is. They had a van. It was called the Minot. So they're all known as like, oh, you can take you can take the Fred or whatever, you know, this or that, you know. But they're always you know, they're very short lived, uh-huh. you know. I remember when I first got there, before I even was on a on a on a work crew, I was kind of driving and kind of whatever, and I was slow, and I was like, uh, I was like, hey, um, 
what if I take the car, take one of the cars out and just wash it in the backyard? And they looked at me like I had lobsters coming out of my ears. It's like, what are you talking about? I was like, no, I mean, if the car's dirty, I'll go clean it up. I'm like, no, no. <laughs> but you want to talk about waste, especially under communism where nobody owns anything. When they bought the, uh, I think the 10-story building that they're now residing in, the, uh, um, I think it was called Chelsea Towers. They renamed it Friendly Towers. There was actually a movie theater on the first floor. Um, and that's where the old the senior citizens were kind of go and hang out there and watch all the movies. They decided that they were going to renovate it to make it nicer for them. So they, they pulled all the seats out and just set them out, out in the weather. Of course, they were ruined. They're like ruined within like, you know, like a week, on the rain and the snow and just totally trash. But nobody cared because nobody owned anything. What did they replace them with? I, I don't think they ever did. I think the seniors lost their, uh, they lost their movie theater. We are the priests who vow to preach the true beliefs and virtual deceits. You might resist, but fate is fixed. You can't persist against an iron fist. Inquisition. So at some point you wanted to do your own music or play music on your own or uh, get involved somehow. And so given... Jesus People USA is full of musicians. I guess you got involved, right? Right. Well, it wasn't full of musicians at first. Okay. Because, in fact, there was a very much a, uh, a boycott on having your own instruments. How does it work? Do you have, like, a dormitory room or something? Or? You were in with, uh, yeah, usually two or three people, two or three guys. Okay. And depending on what area you lived in, if you were in the later 80s, you were, they had the Leland building, so you are in with more guys, like six or seven. Mm-hmm. But usually about two or three, and the, the women were in... Usually uh, in the main building, mm-hmm. you know, the single women and then married couples were interspersed throughout. Just little. little they had room. their own like home. No, they had their own room. Most of the rooms were like about maybe ten by twelve, okay. really small, you know. But you know, we kind of all took a vow of poverty, so that really wasn't that right. big of a deal. And I was poor anyway, so it didn't even matter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was a step up. Huh? It kind of was, yeah. you know. You, so you couldn't have your own instrument in your room, or just no, you couldn't have your own. So I had joined Jesus People, like I said, when I was twenty. And I had been playing bass for a couple years prior to that. And so I brought my, I think I brought like three basses and two amps in. I had one of those big, giant, custom padded cells. You ever see those like size of a refrigerator? Mm-hmm. I had one of those, and I had a, I had a couple Fender basses and Guild bass. Because I had been, I'd worked and I had, you know, saved up and got some basses. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I, I, got, I brought my basses in, and I thought, yeah, I'm going I'm to learn to play bass, and I'm going to really enjoy doing this. And... Uh, well, I was told after I was there for about a month that no, you know, you have to give up your bases, you know, because uh, Edith of Glenn, Glenn Kaiser says, oh no, only, only, only you can only have an instrument if, if we allow it. Again, what do you think the, the reasoning was? Yeah, I have no idea. One of the things was like you couldn't listen to jazz music. And I was like, why can't I listen to jazz music? You know, it's like, well, that's because it's the devil's music. I'm like, really? And rock music is not the devil's music. But I adhered, you know. So. Yeah. Anyway, so I, so I gave up my basses. I mean, it was hard. I stuck them by Jim Denton's store because I knew he played bass, you know. And I liked Jim. So I didn't play bass for about a year after joining there until there was an opening for the, they had a black gospel choir called Grace and Glory. And uh, the guy who was, was playing bass he decided to leave the commune so they needed another bass player and I was really a hack I mean I just I mean I just kind of goofed around but they said hey you want to try out for it so I, tr- I tried out for it and I had to you know learn the part and they said okay you, you know you can do this I'm like okay great 
you know, so I, I learned, you know, their songs and played with them uh, for about six years. I learned a lot there. I mean, because the guys that I was playing with, you know, Ed, who plays drums for with Glenn Kaiser now, he actually went to college, so he's, he was actually a pretty, pretty decent drummer. Um, there was another guy named Paul who played keyboards who was grew up playing jazz in the clubs around Chicago. So they, they helped me. I mean, I was still pretty much a hack. And right at the very end, when I stopped playing with Grace and Glory, I just, I finally got it. Mm-hmm. I finally got it, started playing, you know, funk and doing the popping and all that stuff and really getting into it. But they asked me at that point to uh, work at the studio instead. And if I worked at the studio, my hours would be weird, so I couldn't rehearse and blah, blah, blah. So I'm like, okay, I'm working at the studio. Johnny came in, John Heron. This is probably 1984. Violent Femmes and Lone Justice album just came out. So Cowpunk had just, was just this thing. And he said, how about if you start this Cowpunk band? I'm like, okay. I, I didn't know anything about it. So he says, well, listen to these records. So I, you know, I listened, got to listen to that. And I didn't really dig it. But I mean, I was like, okay. You know, so I kind of threw a little Cowpunk band together. And we kind of played around a little bit, kind of like on church at church. And sometimes played around the neighborhood, like at the lake and stuff. And, Mostly played covers and stuff, mm-hmm. you know, Violent Femmes tunes and Lone Justice tunes. But then I started writing on my own mm-hmm. and really got the bug for it. And I found that I was actually really good at it. But of course, during this time now, because I'm doing music or anything you do, you have to have, you have to get it run past a council member. So, and Glenn was insistent that everything I wrote and recorded he had to hear so I'm like okay and I mean these are I'm making like these horrible recordings so these little four track cassette mm-hmm. things you know and I'm I'm playing bass and trying to sing I didn't sing then but I tried to mm-hmm. you know I would do the drum machine I'd play little keyboard stuff simple parts they're just skeletal sketches of songs but I mean but the songs were there and the lyrics were there and you know well were they kind of Christian songs so to speak well that was the thing because I was never really comfortable with with writing christian stuff because i never really liked christian stuff Uh, it just it never did anything for me because i was always kind of searching the stuff i liked was like i like kansas i like the police i like stuff that had that had a lyric that was didn't really resolve it was Mm -hmm. it was it was more honest Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so what i wound up doing was honestly my writing was i mean it it could be called you know atheist writing i mean definitely the stuff i wrote for res was definitely atheist writing but it was a celebration of doubt I mean, I was reading a lot of Kierkegaard, I was reading a lot of Pascal, um, Sartre, Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. That's the stuff I like. I really like the existentialists. Well, I gotta ask this: Were you allowed to read stuff like that? Well, I was because I didn't because I didn't ask them. It was very anti-intellectual. I mean, did you have to hide books? Um, they, would, would they search your stuff? Or? No, they didn't search my stuff. But I mean, I caught hell mm-hmm. a little bit, you know, sometimes. Yeah. But they didn't have that policy of searching rooms or. No, no, they they weren't that mil- militaristic, but okay. you know it was. You know, I remember Glenn Kaiser stopping me in the hallway, you know, pushing me up against the wall, and saying, "You know, your problem is, Jace, you only read things that you agree with." You know, and of course, I I happened to have a copy of Thus Big Zarathustra in my pocket at the uh-huh. time. I didn't say anything, but I was like, "Yeah, okay." And then I walked in the studio one day, and all of a sudden, my lyrics are coming out on the next Res Band album, and I'm like, "What? What's what's up with that?" You know, I'm like, these are my, my lyrics. What are you, you got my stuff. I know how you got it because Glenn has it because mm-hmm. I had to show it to Glenn. What songs? Um, well, initially there was uh, Fiend or Foul. You know, mm-hmm. Fiend or Foul was a poem I called, wrote called Gifted Youth. I don't 
song I Beat the Dead, I can't remember what the title of it was, mm -hmm. but the thing was that was doubly frustrating is not only did they not ask me, but they would just take snippets of it, mm -hmm. and then they would write some just asinine course, or some, just change some line, which just made no sense at all, and, but, you know, I had no say so in it, they didn't give me a chance to even just say, well, you know, if you don't like this, let me, let me try to change this, they just changed it however they wanted, they stuck my name and on it. They did stick your name on yeah, it? Yeah, they stuck my so name on it. So they did give you credit, at Yeah, least. but I mean, but it was, it was tainted credit, it was like, I'm not sure if I want to have right. my name on this, because this is some really bad writing, you know, that you, with the stuff that you did, they're like, they were just kind of poems, mm -hmm. you know. You know, I'm still having to show my stuff to Glenn, because I'm still trying to get my, my own band together. And then that Civil Rights album came out, and they used more stuff on there. And a couple ones they didn't even change. Like, um, Death Machine was actually a poem I wrote called God Engine. You know, Mission Bells, they didn't, at least they didn't change. I don't think they changed a word in that. How did it work with royalties and all that? Did well, I didn't get anything until like a couple years after I left. Okay. But that's so they not, did honor that at least. Well, because they knew they had to. Right. But the, the worst thing about it was, so they're using my stuff, right? And this is also during the whole time when I won the contest at the, at the poetry contest. Mm -hmm. And I was also going to poetry contests at the Green Mills, which is like the birth of the poetry slam in Chicago. And I mean, I was kicking ass there. Excuse mm -hmm. my language. But I mean, I was doing great. I was like doing something like first time in my life, like, wow, I'm really good at something. I'm not good at anything. How is it that I'm really good at this? Uh -huh. You know, I mean, it was like a surprise to me. But I mean, I really enjoyed being good at something, sure. especially with lyrics, you know. So I, I finally t talked to Glenn because I had to t I had to talk to him like every week. He was like he was, he was kind of like counseling me every week and just it was like oh. But I, I said Glenn, I said, what's the deal? Mm -hmm. Why won't you let me get get my band together? Mm -hmm. And he actually told me this this these words exactly he says, we're not going to let you put your band together because you are a monster. Okay. And. I didn't realize what that meant at first. You know, I had a friend later who, who knew Glenn very well, and he says, oh, monster was slang term for him to be was like the next big thing. Oh. So, and he says... So it was kind of a compliment. It was a compliment, but it was also, but what, what he followed it up with. He said, you are a monster. Your gifts eclipse you as a human being. And you want to talk about a mind, you know. Yeah. I mean, that was it. So it's like, hey, you're a really good writer, but you're so good that we can't unleash you onto the world because the world won't see that you're the terrible person that we see you as. That's really what it was. So it was like a backhanded compliment? Well, it was like a little manipulative and controlling. Mm -hmm. He's like, we have more concern for you as a human being. We don't want that to happen to your soul. And we don't want to see the world. That... And what it was basically was, Glenn wasn't concerned about my soul. Glenn was concerned that I was going to eclipse him. I mean, that's really what it was. But yeah, I mean, it was just, what a thing to say to somebody. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with that? It was devastating. At that point, because I know I've sometimes got sucked into someone's personality to where I believe everything they say, did you go back to your room or go back to wherever and think, like, man, I'm a terrible person. I can't even see it. I'm so dumb. Or Well, no, I mean, because I mean, that's how you were raised there, that you were a terrible person. But I knew I wasn't, I wasn't going to swallow that. Because I was like, you know what? I'm not a terrible person. I'm here living my life at a commune, trying to serve God my, mm -hmm. whole, my whole life. Everything with everything I have. I'm, I'm doing the Mother Teresa dance. Mm -hmm. I am not a bad person. But a lot of people look up to Glenn. Here's 
what I've seen of Glenn. Glenn had an adopted son named Aaron that the community, the commune, took away from their original parents and made Glenn and Wendy uh, the adopted parents. Now, not legally, but they raised him when he was like about know, maybe two till he became 12 or 13. So he was known as Aaron, Aaron Kaiser. After Glenn, had, Glenn and Wendy had their own kids, and Aaron started having your typical teenage things, mm-hmm. okay? Being a little bit rebellious, and again, not fighting, not stealing, not lying. Not, I mean, it's just a good kid, mm-hmm. you know? But just having, you know, you're living in a freaking pressure cooker. So they got tired of Aaron. They cast him aside. They kicked him out. They sent him back to his own parents. And Aaron said, and I'm not making this up, I know this for absolute fact, Aaron said in tears to Glenn, why are you doing this to me? How can you do this to me? I'm your own son. And Glenn said, because life's not fair. The next Sunday, Glenn preached a sermon and told the story about how life is not fair. He cast his own kid, his adopted kid, cast him aside in such a cavalier fashion. That, to me, speaks to the character of Glenn Kaiser more than anything else I can say. As someone who didn't have a father, that cut me to the quick. And I thought, you're a villain. I mean, how can you do that to your own kid? The person who knows you as his father. Life's not fair. I'm kicking you out. Go away. Again, to play contrarian with you, do you think... They thought if they, like a, pushing a bird out of the nest, that it, he would kind of grow up or become whatever they wanted him to be, and then he would come back? Or you have any idea? He's like 12, 13 years old. Oh, that's too young, yeah. Okay. okay. You know, I mean, it's like they got tired of him and didn't want him anymore. They wanted him when it was convenient. When they could pretend that there were big spiritual people, like, taking on an adopted child. But then when it started getting a little tougher, no. You want to talk about a monster? That's a monster. Have you kept in contact with anybody else that's left the commune? Yeah, well, every now and then. I mean, it's been so long, but... You, like you said, you've become an atheist. Did, did everybody have a different um, change of attitude or change of mind? No, I, I, don't, I don't know hardly any of them that have, have become atheists like I have. But they admit like something wasn't right there. Well, yeah, they knew that. That's why they left. Right. It comes at varying degrees, usually about after you leave. You know something's not right. But then after about a year and a half after you're being out and you start realizing that the world is not how it was seen through the eyes of Jesus people, the blinders start coming off and you're like, oh my gosh, that was crazy. That was not right. That was not normal. Why did I believe that? How did I think that was normal? And the answer is, you know, normal is what you're used to. Obviously, there's going to be a bunch of blowback from this if anybody hears that this pretty pro chapuza or has a certain idea of it. I'm just telling you, this is what happened. And this really is like, you want to make a king out of somebody, here's what the king is like. I've known situations where, similar circumstance, like somebody that everybody reveres and maybe has done a lot of good, practical good for a lot of people, the poor or whoever, when one of their giant flaws could destroy the whole organization, I'm not talking about Glenn necessarily, but let's Uh let's talk about the council and their methods. People tend to try to protect it because they don't want to hurt the cause they don't want to mess up like the people that are getting fed or whatever do you think that's a little bit why there hasn't been a lot said about this uh, besides the film on the pedophilia well it's like anything 
you have time invested in something and you think, oh no, it can't be like that. Mm -hmm. Because when you, you start thinking that way, you think, well, maybe what I invested in was not, it wasn't what I thought it was and maybe it wasn't, it didn't have merit. Mm -hmm. That's true and it's not true. I mean, merit is, if your intentions were correct, then, you know, that, that's one thing. But when you do harm to a child, that's a different something else altogether. Mm -hmm. Your ex-wife, where is she today? She's in Nashville and she's she's a Christian. Has she admitted that that was not a great place? You know, it took her about two years. Mm -hmm. uh, when we first left, she uh, um, she left out of duty for, to me. And I will definitely give that to her. She was, you know, mm -hmm. she really did what she, she was trying to do what was good for our marriage. And so was I, you know, but, but no, it took her for about two years to uh, the blinders to come off. And one of the things that made it come off was initially when we left there was a get-together of all the ex-members um, we would get together like every every couple of years and just hang out and and, and honestly and drink mm -hmm. and, and just hang out and just talk and just vent my wife my ex-wife got to speak with a lot of people that she respected because she didn't I, she was married to me but she didn't respect me mm -hmm. because I was seen as a bad person, right. you know, and through her eyes, I was a bad person. You know, can you imagine like a relationship like that? It was just it was like crazy. After two years, and she's speaking with these other people that had left, and she's like, oh my gosh, I had, I'm understanding now. Mm -hmm. That was a really bad place. I'm like, yeah, it, it really was. Mm -hmm. At times in my life, I would, you know, get hurt by Christians or people in the church or especially someone in power, and... For a minute, I would confuse the two. Christ didn't do nothing to me. You know, right. someone who wasn't following his commands very well did that to me. I know so you're going to ask me if my apostasy is due to my time at Jesus people or not. Yes. Yeah, absolutely not. Okay. Because I, I tried to be a Christian for a good 10, 12 years. Okay, so you don't blame Jesus for the counsel, the counsel for Jesus? No, or, or, no, okay. no, no, yeah, okay. no, no, no. I, I, I don't blame Jesus for anything. I don't think he ever existed. You know, Even as a, like a, just a human or... No, I think he was a legend. So him making that comment to you that you're, was it, you're a terrible person? I'm a monster. Is yeah. that when you started to hatch a plan to get out of there? Yeah, that definitely. That was, that was the last straw. Okay. I think the final straw was like, well, if I can't do music, I should at least write. Mm -hmm. So um, put me on the staff of Cornerstone Magazine. And of course, Dawn wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't there was no way in the world she would let me on there. If I'm not allowed to do music, then I want to go to college. I want to get a degree in journalism because at the time, that's you know I thought if I could I could do that and maybe I could take the take the magazine over and make it into a profitable thing and something where it's not such a joke. And I didn't tell him that was my plan, but I said I said you know I really would like to go to school for journalism. And the guy I put to school for a lawyer told me we don't put people through school at Jesus people. I'm like I just put you through school. I just put you through school well, you for said seven you put years. Them through school. I put him through school. I worked my butt off. Oh, you, you, we all yeah we all worked our, we right. all worked our butts off so he could go and instead of going to school go to the titty bars. You know, and he actually had the gall to tell me that Jesus people doesn't put people to school. He was going to strip clubs. Yeah, he's going to strip clubs. So he became the lawyer for. for yeah, he's their lawyer. Still. He's gone now. He, uh, he had to leave too. Oh, all these people that all these people that were there, like were, that were really enmeshed in it, were they had to leave in disgrace because of the scandals and stuff. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. 
I don't think he had anything to do with the, the sexual stuff. Okay, so you, you make your exit. When did you become an atheist? I mean, I had left not because I didn't want to serve God anymore. I left because I wanted to serve God. And right. I knew that I couldn't do it there. Right. I knew that that was not what Jesus People was about. Jesus People was a family-run organization. It was a business. You know, whether you like it or not, that's that's what it was. And it was an, it was a totalitarian business. Mm-hmm. So I left. Really tried to, to keep being a Christian. I tried a bunch of different churches. Finally, I wound up at a, an Episcopalian church that I liked because it wasn't it wasn't a groovy Jesus church. Mm-hmm. You know, my my main problem with Christianity was like. I didn't want Jesus to be groovy. You know, I wanted a God that was mysterious. Mm-hmm. I wanted a rational God. You know, I didn't want this like, hey, hey, buddy. You know, that's yeah. that's. I didn't want that. That was that was like, what do I need that for? Like a paradox. You wanted God to be rational, but also to be a mystery. Explain that. I wanted God to be logical, but yet be unfathomable because gotcha. his his wisdom would be beyond my comprehension. But yet, I would still it still be worth it trying to attain. You didn't want him dumbed down to like some kind of pop culture thing. Yeah, okay. I didn't want him to be like me. Yeah. I didn't want him to be like, you know, my buddy. <laughs> Jesus is my buddy. Well, you know, it's like, you're supposed to be God. That's supposed to be something that's higher and greater and far beyond us. Right. You know, I don't, I don't want to be sitting there drinking beer with, you know, beer drinking Jesus. <laughs> um, anyways, so they would have communion every now and then. And I remember I had communion one time and I was like really in, in very much in the sense of like, I had written a song called To Take the Place of God and I was very much at the mindset of this is just not working for me and they always said you know don't take communion if you're not in the right mindset it'll be bad bad things will happen to you if you do at the Episcopal Church? well no this is kind of like in Christian oh, okay. Christian thing like you should okay. only take communion if you're really right with God mm-hmm. and I wasn't right with God by any stretch of imagination I mean I wasn't doing anything I wasn't lying, cheating, stealing, or doing anything. I wasn't doing anything, but I was not having a relationship with him. And I took communion anyways. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I feel, the most times I feel like I'm alone is when I'm in church. And when I'm trying to reach out to God and know God, those are the times that I am the most unhappy and the most empty. You know, the most time I feel like, like an orphan. You know, I mean, I mean, like I said, my dad committed suicide when I was a kid and I always wanted a father. I always wanted that. What what kid doesn't? What boy doesn't? God was not there for me. So I was like, you know what? Why am I doing this? I just finally just says, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm done with this. I mean, I had my escapades of cursing God out in the shower and stuff like that that a lot of people do, you know, mm-hmm. prior to that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, honestly, I felt so relieved when I realized that I wasn't a Christian anymore because then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, you know what? I don't have to blame God for the shit that's going on in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, just stuff just happens. And um, my life is my own destiny, and I can do with it as I want. You know, it's kind of like where Nietzsche talked about that um, we can sail us across the seas without fear now, you know, though they may be empty seas, you know, sterile seas, they're still seas. Um, and I, I felt that. At first I thought, you know, like, oh, gosh, my life's not going to have meaning or anything. You know, by not having God, I have no, no compass, no bearing. Um, it's so empty. What's the point of it? But that faded pretty quickly. And I, you know, honestly, I can say, I really can say this truthfully. Uh, the day I, I stopped calling myself a Christian, trying to become a Christian, was the day I started to become a happy person. Seriously. I mean, honestly, that has had the most profound change in my life. I'm just like, this is not true. I had traveled that journey to the very end, you know, to the mm-hmm. ends of the earth. And there was nothing there. 
you know, and I still run into people, you know, like, oh, you got to, the reason why you're not a Christian, because you haven't done this, you haven't done that, you haven't won plaid on the 21st century, you know, Sunday after Pentecost, if you just do this, you just do that, I've done it all, mm-hmm. I really have, I've done it more than pretty much almost anybody I know of, aside from all my friends that also lived at Jesus' people, you know, I mean, I've did it, I've done it. And that answer was not the answer for me. I didn't find truth in it. If you find truth in it, that's fine. Mm-hmm. I make room for you. You know, most atheists are like that, you know. We're not trying to, like, beat you over the head, like, how dare you believe in God, you're an idiot. We all realize that, you know, we all go through these different things that we think about. And we all view the world in different ways. And in time, you may think of, you, you may think completely differently than what you do, as I did. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's okay. What does it matter if you think like how I think or not? It doesn't matter at all. So you started doing your own music eventually, and mm-hmm. I'm jumping ahead to that because I know you wrote a song called A God and Superman. Yeah. We never had a soul to lose From the valleys of instinct we came To the mountains where we stand We are authors of a brave new land Where there's no need for God Superman. What is that about exactly? I actually wrote it as a, as a Christian song. Really? Not, yeah. Because I wrote uh, I wrote a lot of stuff. I still write from a Socratic method a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love that type of writing. I don't think I changed the words at all. I just it, the meaning changed for me. When was I it was, the words like we don't need God or Superman? Yeah. There's yeah. no need for God and Superman. And I'm you know I'm using you know there's some lines from Nietzsche you know. But yeah, I mean, a lot of the songs I wrote were actually, I wrote and I still play them. They're Socratic, but they mean something different to me now. Mm-hmm. You know, just like when I, if I ever am forced to have to listen to Res Band songs and I listen to the lyrics that, that they had me write, I'm like, those are atheist songs because my perspective has changed. I will say what you just said about it doesn't really matter to you what anybody else thinks, mm-hmm. that you're not that concerned about them changing their mind to your point of view. I can attest that that's true because I'll give you an example your wife I've had a conversation with once that and she was saying that you know, your all's beliefs aren't the same right and yet you guys are happily married and, and you don't yep. try to make her think what you want to think and uh, also your favorite hang is a Christian owned cigar shop I know I know it is, it was icons that, of Jesus everywhere I know I, we, I, I joke about it. actually I gave him I said man I've got your, your your slogan for you he says I'm an atheist but I got your slogan for you he's like what's that I said you know the thing in, in Revelation where it talks about being caught up in the clouds oh yeah he's like oh yeah but he didn't use it you tell me Joshua Stump yeah yeah yeah. the pastor yeah uh, I mean I have friends that are Christian I have friends that are just uber liberal you know I'm, I'm a libertarian I had this theory, and you can tell me what you think of it, that everybody has either a religion or a philosophy, something higher than themselves, that they, some kind of template that they follow. I feel like when some people, they abandon, maybe they abandon religion, they often replace it with politics. It does seem kind of cult-like, and there's, like, there's not room for dissent, or sometimes it becomes a faith where you may give them facts about something and they refuse to believe it. So in your mind, is that true? And if so, what have you replaced the structure of religion with? Well, let me give the first part. Okay. Everybody wants to be special. You take whatever you can get. 
mm-hmm. you know, if you, you find your meaning in being political or being a sports fan or being a musician or a priest, people are going to try to find their meaning on everything. You know, people want to feel special. And mm-hmm. I, I love the thing in Fight Club, you're not special. <laughs> I mean, and that's, I, I tell myself that all the time, you're not special. For me, if there's meaning, it's in, in writing and doing music, but I keep it in check. I have to keep it in check, otherwise I will go insane. Meaning? In my moments of bravado, I think I am the one of the finest lyricists of my generation. Okay? <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And uh, I have no problem in my mind thinking that. Right. You know, I don't voice that. I don't live there either. Uh-huh. But I mean, but at the same point, I, um, I find a certain identity in my art. You know, as you get older, you, you temper these things. Mm-hmm. You realize that, you know, the, the, the old saying, you know, life is short, and it really, it really is, and what really matters. Let me you ask got you. 100 years from now, who's going to know who Madonna or Justin Timberlake or any of these, mm-hmm. I, mean, I, mean, I mean, come on. Along those lines, like, I felt like for the longest time, music was my purpose. Like, it was the thing that maybe God gave me that I was supposed to do. And, of course, you, when you're not successful at it, you start to wonder, like, well, how is this supposed to work? As I'm getting Unless old, you take the Kierkegaard perspective. Which is? That you are, your art is made to suffer. There's a wonderful story he tells about um, the tyrant king Phallus, I think. He had a bronze bull constructed that was hollow on the inside. And it's got these reeds inside the nose of the, and the mouth of the, of the, of the bull. He would put people who he didn't like inside of it and roast them over a fire. Their screams were transmuted into musical notes. <laughs> Kierkegaard says that's what art is like. Your pain is transmuted into yeah, this beautiful your blues. Thing. And I've always stuck with me. That's a really good thing. So, But besides the fact of not being successful at music, then comes the, with old age... Now I'm having hearing problems, and it's a very possibility one day I won't hear. Yeah. And then you think, like, well, what am I going to do? What's mm-hmm. my purpose going to be, you know? Am I just going to become a, a husk of skin, you know? <laughs> so that said, like, do you have a plan for when that may happen to you where you can't do something that's purposeful? No, okay. because I think I can always do music. I continually try to get better at my craft. Mm-hmm. My wife keeps things in check for me. She really does. My wife, Dorothy... Uh, We've been married for 15 years, and she's a bikini bodybuilder. You mm-hmm. know, at 58 years old, has an amazing, amazing physique, and is the sweetest person in the world. She keeps me in check on the sanity of like, don't be bitter, mm-hmm. don't be bitter over other people's successes because that has nothing to do with with you. You know, that really helps me. But she's like, don't stop. This is what you do, and I'm like, I know. And, you know, in, in in a lot of ways, I wish I could. I wish I could just walk away from it mm-hmm. because it would be easier, but I can't because I know I'm good at it and it brings me joy. And I may still one day be that teenage pop sensation that I want to be. <laughs> no, you know, I heard some really great piece of advice about, about music and I would be happy to share this to anybody else who does music. Listen to another podcast and they had me on as a guest and we were talking and this individual said, you know, never disparage the gig you have because what you think is beneath you is someone else's goal. I was like, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. that's really true. That is really true, especially when you think about when you're starting. I was like, oh, I wish I could just do one gig, just one gig, mm-hmm. even if it's for my friends, you know, anything. And then now it's like, gosh, I wish I could play for 20,000 people, and, mm-hmm. you know. Everyone's curious. 
So lend us all your trust If you seek a thrill, we'll give you your fill Come hell, how water or bust Now give that roulette a spin You're guaranteed to win Yeah, right, you, you don't, don't want, want to miss a moment of this The show is about to begin We didn't get time to talk about a lot of the aspects of your art and the things you're doing, but I, so I do want to point people towards a few things. So, of course, you have a band with your wife called mm-hmm. Meet the Seavers. Right. Uh, you have a TV show. Yeah, we did a TV show. Yeah, you can find episodes on the internet, right? Yeah, it's, uh, it's still, I think I still have it on YouTube. We, we did it for about four years as a musical, kind of like a, a 21st century Sunny and Share. We actually make it picked up by a larger network, believe it or not. I actually really? was in talks about it right before this whole COVID thing uh-huh. happening. Yeah, you guys saying, yeah, we're, we're, it looks like it's going to happen in May. You know, of course, you know, it's, it's June now. You know, and I haven't contacted. If it happens, it happens. Right. Great. You know, it's fun. Regardless, my wife and I have a lot of fun on stage. I mean, I, I sing and play upright bass. Dorothy sings, plays theremin, and is just Dorothy on stage. Which, if She's, you if you ever get a chance to know Dorothy, she is just a larger-than-life, truly wonderful, wonderful person. Yeah. You did Everybody, good. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's like, you know the old saying... I'm dating myself, but there was a there was a commercial. That everybody doesn't love something, but nobody doesn't like Sara Lee. Remember that old commercial for Sara Lee cake? It's like that. I said, but everybody doesn't love like something, but nobody doesn't like Dorothy because she's just she's Dorothy. But so we do swing musical theater. I guess is the best way to to explain our music. Um, you know, when I first started doing stuff with Dorothy, she was. Um, She's like, I don't want to do this dour stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do this existential, really deep, dark stuff. If you want me to sing, you have to write some fun songs for me. So that's, I started writing the more fun and goofy, and I still love it. You guys those. do a lot of comedy. Yeah, yeah, but I love it. I, I didn't think I would. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I always thought it would thought it'd be corny, but you can be really clever and funny at the same time. That's fun, and people like that. You know, rather than like, oh, I'm going to bleed for you on stage for the next 20 minutes. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's like, give them something that's fun and make their day and get them to think something other than the troubles. And it's a lot more fun that way. If somehow you're still in a CCM-ish mood, you might give in the corner back by the woodpile 203 a listen where music industry insider randy layton talks about his time with the aforementioned steve scott the 77s daniel amos keith green and others also possibly of interest to you is episode 221 where i talked to brian smith of the law and liberty organization where we discuss religion government and history and how their various tensions can be worked out for the greater good And I'll put this out there. If you yourself personally have had some participation with a communal organization, good or ill, shoot us an email and maybe we can have you on to tell all about it. Or if you were at Japuza, actually, had a totally different experience and want to call us a bunch of big fat liars, I ain't against hearing your side of the story either. My daughter will give you that email here in a sec. And the documentary we mentioned earlier about the allegations of abuse at Jesus People is titled No Place to Call Home produced by Jamie Pratter, and you can find it on YouTube. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us 
at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Whoa. Bye-bye. Of what I wish with you. Of what I 